Welcome to the Impact Gap Podcast. We are a graduate student-run, patient-centered podcast group based at the University of Toronto. Our mission is to provide a platform for patients and advocates to share their stories and their experiences within our healthcare system. My name is Sally, and today's episode is on the topic of mental illness. In any given year, one in five people in Canada will experience mental illness. Furthermore, individuals aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness than any other age group. Currently, significant stigma continues to persist around mental illness. For example, mental illness like depression is three times less likely to be disclosed than a physical illness like cancer. My guest today is Lucy Langford. She is a researcher and advocate on a number of different committees and initiatives dedicated to advancing research and supporting individuals with mental illness, such as the Ontario Spore Support Unit, or the OSSU, which is focused on patient-partnered health research. Thank you for joining us today. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about your story, Lucy? So I'm Lucy, and I identify as a cisgendered white woman who lives uh, in Toronto, or what we know currently as Toronto. So yeah, I'm here to talk about my healthcare experiences. So that's what I'm going to focus on, although I would definitely like to mention I have a lot of interests outside of that and if I'm thinking about myself as a whole person I have lived experience of a, of a mental health challenge a severe mental illness and I also I am a researcher I love cycling and I like to bake and and these are the things that I, I fill my time with I also have a golden retriever puppy who is very cute um, and, and that's something that is now part of my identity because he's actually training for service work Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, would you be able to um, share a little bit about um, that journey of, of having your dog be service? Sure. Um, well, it was a long process and something that my physician recommended a long time ago. And prior to the start of the mm-hmm. pandemic, I had begun looking for a dog. But unfortunately, for mental health challenges, there are very few organizations that will train mm-hmm. uh, service animals. So I went through the route Mm -hmm. of training him myself and my friends very kindly started to go fund me for me. And that was how we started it. Yeah. So I visited the breeder prior to the pandemic and then we went through several litters. Mm -hmm. And finally, there was one that like at as he progressed in age, uh, thought might have an aptitude for service work. So now I have him and his name is Indigo, which is a very special. It's very special to me that his name is Indigo. And the story there is. Mm -hmm. my physician who recommended that I get a dog she got a golden retriever um a little bit before me and she we stopped actually um our relationship because she moved on to another role and she had told me one of the names that she had considered for her dog was indigo and so she said I just offer this to you because I know that your favorite color is purple and so it was her Mm -hmm. initial idea and now it's sort of like a way that I honor our relationship because it was so special to me I love that. Yeah, especially since it has such a uh, strong meaning behind it. You mentioned, uh, you know, the GoFundMe, which is quite interesting. Um, would you be able to elaborate a little more about the cost of having a service dog trained? Yeah, absolutely. So he's still in the process, but all said and done, I think for all kind of service dogs, they're around forty to $60,000. Oh, wow. um, it takes a lot. Yeah. So fundraising that on my own, which I, I we had not we've not gotten anywhere near kind of what we're hoping for, but it was, it was at least enough to kind of purchase the dog. And he was trained for five months 
So would you be able to tell us a little more about your experiences with mental illness? Sure. I was diagnosed very young. I feel as though I have always experienced some degree of mental illness, even prior to it being diagnosed. So I was like officially diagnosed with something around 12. Um, and mm-hmm. my experience with that, with that was really feeling like I always felt like I didn't fit in. And I grew up in rural Ontario and I'm, I'm a first generation Canadian. My, my parents immigrated here from England. And so I, we didn't have regular access to the internet, uh, 15, 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. So I actually like endeavored to find out about what I was experiencing through books. So I went to the used bookstore and I found a really old abnormal psychology book and I still have it. And a whole bunch of symptoms are just like highlighted. And this was from when I was really young. And I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but that's, I, I always had a sense and I always kind of knew. And then going through the formal diagnosis, which evolved quite a lot because like they don't, they don't, or at least they didn't tend to diagnose like severe mental illness in, in younger people. So it, my illness kind of evolved mm. over the years. I mean, I don't know if it necessarily evolved, but I got older and the symptoms manifested in different ways. And so like now I have a new diagnosis and I've been working on treating it in, you know, through my twenties. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of interesting to hear you mention, you know, um, that it, um, again, just to use your words, you mentioned evolved and even that, you know, you mentioned that doesn't quite fit it even then. Would you be able to elaborate a little more on what you mean? Yeah. So at first I was diagnosed with an illness called dysthymia, which I'm not sure is used commonly anymore. I rarely hear other mm. patients use that word. So that's sort of like, mm-hmm. I mean, it was always conceptualized as a milder, um, more recurrent, uh, prolonged depression. Um, so, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I, as I said, I don't really hear people using that term and I don't know if that's now what I would use. I I've had really persistent anxiety and I think that due to what I was experiencing, I think that clinicians often knew that I was experiencing something deeper, but it was in, from what I know, frowned upon to diagnose like emotional sensitivities in, in very young people. So I received that diagnosis Mm -hmm. when I was like about 17, but I, I already knew from my own research at this point, it it Mm -hmm. fit with me and it didn't feel like news to me, but it also didn't feel satisfying when I got diagnosed either. It didn't feel like, Oh, now I finally feel like I have a name for what I'm experiencing. It always felt very, Mm -hmm. it felt like something that I understood because I have it, but something that the community in the medical community really struggle to understand. And I think that's still my experience often. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting to hear that, you know, although you've received a diagnosis, um, that you still weren't satisfied with it. Um, Can you share why uh, you felt that way at the time? Maybe it was because of lack of treatment. And at the time when I got diagnosed, Mm -hmm. I was 17. And I was too old for child adolescent services, but I was too young to go into the adult mental health system, but I was experiencing like real significant challenges. So it almost felt like it didn't modify anything for me. And over the Mm. course of 
until I was 25, I endeavored to get the correct treatment, which is dialectical behavior therapy. And I was not able to receive this treatment, even though I knew that I needed it. And I was on wait lists and the wait lists were infinitely long. And so I didn't actually receive any targeted treatment for it, evidence-based treatment for it until I was, mm -hmm. I think, 25. And I moved my whole life from Ottawa to Toronto mm -hmm. so that I could get treatment because I just, it didn't seem like it was going to happen in Ottawa, which like, I don't, that sounds very negative and I don't mm -hmm. want to dissuade anybody from, from getting treatment. But I do think that there is a significant gap in mm -hmm. where treatment is offered um, because it's quite resource mm -hmm. intensive. Um, the way that dialectical behavior therapy works is that Mm -hmm. you would see an individual therapist and then go to a group session. And those, those things would occur for about six months or longer. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to share a little more about your experience with this type of therapy? I think what is evidence-based right now is dialectical behavior therapy. Yeah. And I've, I've done it and I'm, I've done it oh, multiple okay. times. And I think for me, it falls a little bit short for me, I feel like DBT lacks a lot of context and I find it hard to apply to quote unquote, the real world and real situations that I'm in, like work and professional situations in school. It's, it's really good if you know it yourself, but if those around you don't also know it, it's very challenging. So like one of the modules is interpersonal effectiveness and that's really good, but not everybody responds to interpersonal effectiveness skills yeah that's quite interesting uh would you be able to give um an example of where you know something you are learning um you know very effective in the moment but then uh what you found it hard to apply in the real world i can think of email etiquette sometimes email etiquette is extremely short and, mm -hmm. you know, people are not in a place often where they're going to read a whole dialogue, but DVT and the interpersonal effectiveness would really teach about like writing this whole dialogue where it sort of considers my ask, what might be reinforcing for the other person. And I just find in today's age, like that might not be received well. And it's also so prescriptive mm -hmm. that sometimes it feels like if I use it, if the other person's savvy, they might know that I'm using it and it might like out me as somebody who experiences this illness. Oh, but that might be a little like taking yeah. it too far. No, I think, you know, uh, you mentioned worrying about being outed and that, you know, is a, definitely a very real fear. Would you be able to comment on the uh, stigma that you may have faced? I grew up in the, in quote unquote, the mental health system. And that was 20 years ago. And so things have evolved since then. And I think that I have experienced some pretty significant trauma and some pretty significant stigmatization. For instance, I grew up, um, I grew up in a hospital when I was very young. So I didn't have very traditional experiences. I was told like, I most likely would never go to university. And I worked really hard to get into university and to get mm -hmm. a scholarship because that was something that I was told like I would never do. And now as things change, I think that some of that, that trauma, like I do keep with me and it might be a little bit more self stigma. Mm -hmm. Lucy, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that someone discouraged you like that. But I, I do think that I've had experiences even now where I work at a hospital 
And if I were to receive care at that hospital for mental illness, it feels like I'm being received very differently, even though at the core, I'm still the exact same person. Mm -hmm. And that baffles me a little bit. Um, I'm scared to talk about what I'm going through because I want to be a physician one day. And I am scared that having this diagnosis will preclude me from that profession. And I guess what I have to say to that is I didn't, I didn't ask for any of the things that have happened to me. I didn't wake up one day and wish this upon myself. And I know that no patient does. It's an extremely hard journey. And I think that having to deny part of myself that I experienced just to make other people comfortable and to fit in within society really actually makes the problem worse because I'm not embraced as my true self. And when things come up that are related to my illness, I feel as though I can't bring them up and talk about them in a transparent way because I just feel as though I'll be stigmatized or, you know, if I talk about it at work, people will think that I'm incompetent and I'm not incompetent. I'm just, I want to say different, but I don't, I don't know. I feel different and that's my personal experience and I don't want others with this diagnosis to think that they're different, but I do feel different. Yeah. And I really do appreciate you um, meeting with us today and you know your willingness to share your story. I, I'm a strong believer that um, when when people be their true selves, it's really contagious and infectious. And I, I would hope that uh, you are able to empower other people to you know be their true selves and um, not feel uh, stigmatized because of their condition. Thank you. That's something that I'm hoping to achieve. Actually, I feel as though I haven't had role models in my life who identify with the same diagnosis that I do. And perhaps in actual fact, they do, but they're not able to talk about it. And I hope that by talking about it, I can inspire others to talk about their authentic selves and their authentic journey, even if it's not exactly the same. And I think there are a lot of positive qualities that actually come from this illness that aren't talked about very often. You touched on an interesting topic here about role models. Can you elaborate a little more about equity and representation? So I, I'm a researcher, so I, I think a lot about research mm-hmm. and, and care and how the, all of those things are connected is that when there are not people within the system who, who experience these types of illnesses and these have these experiences, then it's, it makes sense that they're left out. It makes sense that they're left out of care decisions and, and it's not top of mind, the issues that we're experiencing. So I think that there needs to be more opportunities for folks like me to be empowered and to come into positions of power where we're able to make decisions um, about care that really matters to us. And not just as, as patient advisors, but also people on the team who have many qualities and, and, and educational experiences to bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, uh, your aspiration of being a physician is certainly really admirable. I think, you know, the passion, uh, you know, really does show through. And I think the experiences that you've had, the lived experiences that you've had, uh, you know, within the healthcare system, I think would be really, really helpful. And not to say that I would wish it upon anyone else, but I think that definitely would lend to um, just being a more compassionate care provider, right? Definitely. Um, You mentioned, uh, you know, self-stigma a little bit while ago. Would you be able to elaborate um, what you mean by that? So the way that it manifests for me is trying to appear very much like everybody else. Um, trying, like, sometimes I, I want to use this expression, like, is my mental illness showing? And it's mortifying to me. I'm so paralyzed by wanting to try just because it might end up in, like, really significantly 
bad repercussions for me that I I don't even want to try and give people that chance. But it, it, it ends up being a lot of work because I'm sort of hiding this part of myself and covering it up in, in a very deliberate way, which now feels a lot less deliberate, but it's still, I'm putting a lot of energy into it that I could be using for something a lot more productive, I think. Yeah, it definitely feels like, um, for your description, just constantly walking on eggshells, just being mindful of even the language. And you mentioned the DBT that, you know, sometimes feeling worried that even applying the knowledge that you learn through DBT might get you outed. So yeah, I can definitely see what you mean by that. It's funny you mentioned Walking on Eggshells. That's a really popular book for people with my diagnosis. It it makes me think that if if I disclose my condition, it will make people think that I have to be coddled or I can't handle certain things. And I don't think that what I'm asking or what I need is really any different from what others need. But I think that others might be able to tolerate harshness a little bit better than, than I can. And of course, I'm learning you know, I'm, I'm not perfect either. People can be harsh for a lot of reasons. Um, but I guess I just, I just hope that people don't think that they have to relate to me any differently. And really, I think compassion is just the way to go always. Yeah. Yeah. At the core, you know, we're all human, right. And want to be treated and with respect and, you know, all the core essential things that make us human and definitely uh just moving on to a different topic now would you be able to share how you got involved in research i was attending mcgill university and i was very interested in kind of the student movement towards uh, mental health on campus and i attended an event in montreal and i saw a poster for this thing called Transformational Research and Adolescent Mental Health or TRAM. It was like their logo was on a poster board. So I inquired about what that was. And I emailed somebody who I didn't even, he was, he was like pretty important in in health administration. And I didn't even know that at the time, but like my 20 year old self was just like, sure, I can email anybody like no inhibitions. And so, yeah, so I got involved with it. So the Transformational Research and Adolescent Mental Health was an initiative of the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, CIHR. And so how I got involved with them is that they were launching this other acronym called the Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research, or SPOR. And it was where they were really trying to include people with living experiences of of different health challenges uh, in broad research decisions. So I was actually able to join the team on the side of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research as a grant reviewer. And I worked with two other young people and we were grant reviewers on a $25 million project to transform mental health. And I thought that this was how research was done. Mm -hmm. I didn't know research was not done this way. So for me, involving patients and people with lived experience has always been the way. So I was actually quite shocked to hear that it was done without patient voice and without it being patient centered. That was a shock to me, but I guess naively. (laughs) No, it completely makes sense. Um, You know, it seems like from the beginning and even now, uh, a lot of the work that you've been involved in has always and it will always involve patients. So in terms of, you know, your involvement uh, in research, are you still working in research now? Yes, I still work in research. I am currently doing research within the primary care, so family physicians and the severe or serious mental illness space. And what I'm trying to do is really 
involve people with lived experience to find out what their needs are, find the gaps and try to implement solutions. Something that I've learned is that not all interventions that are aimed to help people like patients Mm -hmm. exist within a medical model. That's something that I'm recently kind of coming to understand better. And, and I think that that's kind of interesting. What does that mean? Not rooted in a medical model? Like, would you be able to give an example of what you mean? Yeah. So I'm thinking about things like peer support, like that's being adopted into medicine a lot now, Mm -hmm. but it never was. That was never the intention. It was like a very grassroots way of people coming together to to talk about what's worked for them, what hasn't worked, uh, you know, how to navigate the system. And so that's kind of something that I mean, where it's an intervention that really helps people, but not necessarily um, something that was provided by a hospital. In your journey of how you got involved in research, you mentioned that you saw the flyer and then you contacted them. Um, and it really was a lot of you going to them. Uh, is is that premise still the same like even nowadays or do you feel that has changed a little more where people are meeting more in the middle I very much feel from my experience that I'm still having to meet researchers where they're at so I will give an example where I'm becoming a researcher I'm getting the educational credentials to do those things I sit in meetings about qualitative and quantitative data uh, on the daily and so I feel like I've come to them. I've I've kind of understood their language and, and it's for necessity. It's sort of like if if I want my priorities, my my health priorities to to get funded or or to get traction, it's really advantageous for me to come to them because I'm not sure what would happen if if I didn't take any initiative. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I don't think that my priority and I still feel very much as though the the priorities of of people with my diagnosis specifically um it's like incredibly underfunded there's hardly any research going on but i'm i'm hoping to change that and the way to do that for me is is to kind of come to the inside yeah from within come from within yeah so in your opinion what are ways that research could do better to meet patients more in the middle i think it's a lot more of an informal process than people think Research is very structured. You go through an REB, you know, we're told that working with patients with mental illness, it's a, it's a vulnerable population. And I will say for myself, I don't feel vulnerable. I feel as though if somebody approached me and said, hi, I want to partner with you on research. I want to hear what you have to say with candor. I feel like I would be so thrilled to hear that. And Mm. I think that the conversations are a lot more natural. And I I do really like the idea of kind of having somebody like me where it's like a liaison, like I can go back to my community of patients and I can also talk to researchers and physicians about what they have to say. And I feel like that trust is built, but I don't know. I think it's just about a genuine like listening and wanting to know. And, and it's hard when the model of research is, is, is kind of like, what do they call it? The hamster wheel of research, you know, you apply for grants and it has to be a great idea. And, and I think that sometimes just stop and pause and think, what's the long game here? Because if I do it right initially, I'm going to have lots of, lots of really good research that actually um, makes an impact in the community that I'm, I'm hoping to help. And to also think about like, what's your why? For me, my why is I have this illness and I'm motivated to do things to help, you know, alleviate suffering.
Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you phrased it though, Lucy. What's your why? I think that's definitely a phrase I'm certainly going to take away and probably start using a lot more often in my everyday life. And Thanks. what are your thoughts on, you know, the current representation in research right now? My thoughts are that in upper management, it still hasn't changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't see people like me in positions of power, which is challenging to yeah. say as a white woman who is very privileged you know, like I do physically see people that look like me, but I don't see people with the neurodiversity that I have mm. in positions of power. And and one way that I think we could combat this is is education is a very ivory tower type of an endeavor. Um, and I think that there is many initiatives to try to draw and attract diverse individuals and 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 be more inclusive. And I think that that's great at the recruitment process, but I think we need to dig deeper and think more about like, what can we do to retain these individuals to make sure that the place is safe for them to engage in this type of work. And I think that that would really do a lot for increasing representation. And, you know, I know for me, like education has been really, really hard to access just throughout my life. I've had like the most untraditional (laughs) educational path, I think of anybody I know. Thanks for sharing, Lucy. This is a really important point on neurodiversity, and you mentioned experiencing challenges with accessing education. Um, Can you comment on other barriers you faced in that realm? The other thing that I want to talk about about this is that like there are a lot of like financial barriers. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like a broader question and sort of like the disparity that we see between physical and mental health. Mm -hmm. But yeah, having a mental illness is incredibly expensive. It's very expensive. For me, it's been very expensive. And I require a lot of the interventions that I'm currently using, like such as private therapy. Mm-hmm. And so to be spending so much money on wellness and then to also have to kind of engage in tuition and all of those things, like it can be a very prohibitive process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it sounds yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, a, a big financial burden for sure. And so it sounds like private therapy is not covered by OHIP. Is that right? For the most part, it's not. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, there's a lot of things that I like some of my medications are completely uncovered and they're extremely mm-hmm. expensive. Like one of my medications, I think last year we spent $6,000 on it. Oh, wow. Mm hmm. And I wasn't taking that for the whole year. So Mm. for half a year, $6,000, like that's a lot, that's a lot of money. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you mentioned, not even for the year. So um, yeah, that's a huge, significant cost. In your experience, what has dealing with the side effects of medication been like for you? For me, it was fairly challenging early on. When I say early on, I mean like in my early 20s, mm-hmm. when I started taking medication, I didn't appreciate how I as a patient needed to manage it. So I didn't like write down every medication that I was taking and the effects that it had on me. And then I ended up taking like 13 things a day. And one of them like really made me gain a lot of weight and um, that I found challenging to tolerate. And I think having a really good relationship with with my psychiatrist, I had a really great psychiatrist, helped me to understand like, okay, some of these medications just don't work for me. And that's sort of like, that's my personal journey is that a lot of medications don't work. I'm very, very sensitive to medications. So you mentioned uh, earlier in your diagnosis journey, um, you know, you mentioned being quite young. And then at some point, you know, being too old for certain programs, too young for other programs, and now you've moved into adulthood. 
Uh, would you be able to um, share a little more about that transition uh, between the different systems as you aged? Yeah, it was really scary for me to go from child adolescent, which mainly for me meant inpatient hospitalization. That's mainly the, the child and adolescent service that I received. And then to go to adult services. And I remember that I was in a hospital that had, they were on the same floor, child and adolescent and an adult was on the same floor and they were like joined. And I remember the day that I was like too old for, for being in the child and adolescent unit. And I had to like go through these big double doors and like on the other side. And I felt so young and it was scary for me, to be honest. Like mm -hmm. I felt very scared and I was older too. Like I was like, 1920 mm -hmm. and I think that I had tried to stay in the child and adolescent system for for too long because that's where I felt most comfortable mm -hmm. because I hadn't had a lot of experiences even like as a young adult as a teenager because I grew up in a hospital and everything was pathologized you know I, I couldn't I didn't have sort of normal experiences or quote unquote normal typical I will say typical experiences mm -hmm. so so it was hard going into the adult mental health system with people who had like a, a variety of different things but I I have settled there I'm glad that I'm here now mm -hmm. <laughs> uh I'm glad that I have a really great kind of adult psychiatrist or, or I had a really great adult psychiatrist so so the transition was hard mm -hmm. um but I did make it to the other side and it was okay. I would imagine over this process, you didn't feel like you changed, but then the system was saying, oh, you know, your age has changed. Therefore, we're going to throw you over here. So I can imagine that that's really jarring for you. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a lot of great initiatives now that ease the transition, kind of bring the young adults sector in, like this is a, an emerging sector um and bring services up to like 25 or 29 and that feels a lot more safe and i wish that things like that had existed when i was younger and i think that it's like i think it's a really great change mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely and, and i think it's so needed i think that issue of you know transitioning the care from you know pediatrics to i guess you know adult care it's you know definitely really really challenging so assuming money was no object policy was not a barrier what is one change uh, that you would want to make? I think that I would want to change people's perception of folks with mental illness. Oh, mm -hmm. that's what I think that I would want to change. I would want to change the inclusivity of folks who experience mental illness mm -hmm. and to embrace them as partners and as equals as opposed to an us versus them mentality. And I would want to extend this to like folks with addiction because I think that the divide is not that far. I really, I really don't. Yeah, absolutely. But what led you to choose this particular one as the change that um, you would choose? For me, I think that it's a significant problem that it's still like people with mental illness, especially significant and severe mental illness, including addiction, are still seen as like second class citizens. You know, if we look at social determinants of health and there are a lot of, of things that folks who experience what I do have a lot less. And that's a structural problem. That's not a them problem. That's a structure problem. And so perhaps my choice is a thought to provide equity and to, to consider equity, because I think that even in spite of all those challenges that I've had, 
I am extremely privileged. And I wish that everybody who has what I had, had at least the level of privilege that I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think this is a really, really important point. I guess a challenge that I think relates to me as a person is that I've always felt really different. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've spent a lot of time trying to find where I fit. And I still don't feel as though I fit. And that's a really isolating experience. It's extremely isolating. So that's that's a challenge that I still face or even trying to communicate what feels so isolating about having people around, but like feeling as though they don't truly get it. But I kind of find that like a lot of times like mental illness can be like shunning in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think that being more embracing is, is really important. Yeah. That's a really good point. Can you comment on other ways that mental illness might differ from physical illness? It's funny because I was recently like diagnosed with a, with a physical condition and I the ease at which I felt I could talk about that was so different. And, you know, people offering support, some of my family members from the UK offering support for that. Like, I, it, I don't know if you've ever heard about like men, people with mental illness, like you don't get the casserole or the lasagna or whatever. And <laughs> And that feels so true. Like, it's Mm -hmm. almost like people don't know how they can help. But even showing up and saying, I don't know what you need. And it's okay if you don't know Mm -hmm. either. But like, I'm here with you and you don't have to do it alone. Yeah. Because that's almost what I felt like happened when I was able to say like, oh, I was diagnosed with an ovarian cyst. Like that felt so easy to say. And it felt like people would understand what that was like. Mm -hmm. But with mental illness, like it's not. And I think what would help too is embracing our, your own experience with symptoms of these types of illnesses. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it comes back to um, our, the earlier part of our conversation where we talked about, you know, just recognizing that, you know, everyone's human and has felt, um, you know, a lot of, or have some very common experiences to to different degrees for sure, but um, a lot of shared experiences for sure. And just, um, yeah, just being there for one another, right? Something that, my psychiatrist told me is that you don't have to do anything to prove your worth. Like all humans have like inherent value for just being here. And that's, I think something so beautiful and something that I'm trying to embrace more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I really appreciate that approach, Lucy. Um, You mentioned something uh, earlier about, um, you know, I think it goes something like, um, you don't get the casserole. I think what you're alluding to is, you know, um, mental illness being sort of an invisible illness. That's another way I've heard it be positioned. Would you be able to comment a little more about that? Yeah, it is very invisible. And I think, I think that there are, there are things that make it visible, but it's, it's challenging to address these things. Would you be able to give an example of what you mean? Yeah. So I think that sometimes like if somebody doesn't show up a couple of days, maybe like the thought is like, oh, they're lazy. They don't want to be here. But like maybe something is going on and they just like need to be checked in on. And and I think that that there might be there might be signs and that it's not always like as invisible as as, you know, we might mm-hmm. think or but but also it is it does really rely on the person to be able to speak up and to say something. And that's and that's why it's so important to to create a culture where it's okay for people to come forward and, and talk about what they're going through because 
like that is something that you can do as somebody who doesn't experience a mental illness. Like you can create a culture where mental health, mental well-being is talked about. Everybody has bad days. Equalize the the playing field. I just wanted to ask one last question to you, Lucy. Um, what is one message that you hope our listeners will get from our talk today? One message that I hope that you'll all take with you is that folks with mental illness at the core are are people too, uh, which sounds really basic. And you might think, yeah, I already know that. But how can you embody that? How can you live it? How can you work with us to help change systematic, like systematic models that are not intended to serve us? Like, what can you do? Because going with the status quo, I just don't think is the way to go. I think we're coming to realize that. And so your advocacy matters, no matter how small, whether that's changes in language, whether that's working to hire somebody with like lived experience and other in other qualifications as well. I just think that anything that you can do is, is worth it. And to talk to us because you might not know where to start, but I'm, my door is always open. I love fielding questions. I love helping with medical education. And so there are people who are willing to help you. You don't have to do this alone.